I think the biggest challenge that I had was admitting that I needed help at those inflection points. That's the other thing that kept me going. Obviously, passion and my passion and our team's passion was really helpful, but also the passionate customers. Welcome, everybody, to The Chris Harder Show, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success, knowing that when good people like you make good money, they can then do great things. My name is Chris Harder, and several times per week, I will bring you epic guests, solo episodes, and every single tool, trick, and skill set you need to grow your business, grow your money mindset, and to grow your wealth to levels that you have never reached before. I've ended up in a unique place in life where I've got the experience, the connections, and all of the secrets that it takes to be successful. And I'm lifting the curtain to reveal it all to you in an effort to help put you in a position of abundance so great that you can then be as generous as possible. So let's lock arms and let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Chris Harder Show. Today, we are going to talk about how to problem solve some of your biggest business challenges, but we're going to do it by sharing some inspirational challenges of friends of mine who have incredible businesses that have each had to problem solve some pretty big David and Goliath type of battles. So you're about to hear from Jim Carter and R.T. Custer. Now, not only are they the co-founders of Carter and Custer, the awesome marketing firm, it was also behind my wife's light pink trying to get a lot of that in place for their big launch and, and taking care of all their tech. But individually, RT is the founder of Vortic Watches, that famous watch company that literally just won this giant court battle over Swatch Watch, a $10 billion company, because what they do is they repurpose 100-year-old plus old pocket watches into modern-day wrist watches. So you're going to hear that story. It's super cool. It's going to make you want to run through a wall for anything. And then, of course, Jim Carter is the tech genius, also co-founder of 4West Digital, a digital marketing company that my brother and I have. He's one of our business partners in that. And he's one of the gentlemen we go to for all of our tech challenges. And he's going to talk about how he can problem solve and how you can problem solve some of your tech challenges. And at the end, because they're both loving, caring individuals, they have a really cool offer for you, no strings attached, to get a little bit of help from either one of them. So you're not going to want to miss that. Anyhow, listen, this episode is full of inspiration. It's going to remind you that you're not alone in your challenges. And it's going to remind you to keep going. And it's going to give you actionable items on how to bust through those walls and overcome your challenges. So get ready. Take some notes because here we go. All right, Jim and RT, welcome to the show. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Happy Friday. You guys have doing both fantastic. been on individually before, but not together at the same time. Am I right? Correct. You are right. Because, you know, I've done a couple of these where I'll have a couple of individuals on at the same time, but I didn't think you guys were ever on together at the same time before. So listen, to everyone listening right now, this is why this call is really, really, really special. First of all, both these gentlemen are great, great friends of mine. I consider them family at this point. But beyond that, what we're talking about today is problem solving. And these are the gentlemen that we go to to problem solve a lot of the things that come up as challenges in our businesses. As you know, Lori and I have a lot of different businesses. And sometimes it's tech, so we go to Jim. Sometimes it's marketing related, so we go to RT. But these are two of the most important individuals in our business life when it comes to problem solving. And so 
because you, the listener, have so many challenges that show up in business and in life and in your job, I thought it'd be great to have a conversation as to some of the bigger challenges that they have overcome so you can find yourself in their stories, so you can be inspired, so you can see some light at the end of the tunnel, get some tips on how they did it so that you can actually walk away with some actionable things on how you're going to solve your problem. And at the very, very end, actually, they've agreed to do something really cool to help you solve your individual problems if you're down when we get to that point. So this will probably be one of the most important episodes that we've ever done because business cannot survive without problems. Matter of fact, Lori is now famous for saying entrepreneurship is just solving problems daily on your way to some kind of win eventually. She's like, I used to think entrepreneurship was like fun and glorious and all this stuff, you know, freedom and work from where you want. She's like, no, it's just daily putting out fires and solving problems until one day you get some kind of reward down the road. And what bothers me is people give up on their journey because they have these problems, they don't know how to solve them, or they lose inspiration, or they think they're unsolvable, or it seems too hard, and then they don't get that reward, and, and we're here to change that. So both of you guys have solved some really cool problems, and these stories are awesome. But RT, I want to start with you, if you don't mind. Is that cool? Absolutely. So your problem was actually in the media a lot, which was really cool. It was a David versus Goliath kind of story. So those of you that heard the intro, RT is the founder of Vortic Watches, one of my favorite watch brands, because... They reclaim 100-year-old plus pocket watches and they rebuild them and turn them into beautiful, valuable wristwatches in the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per watch. And so many of my friends like Lewis Howes and Dave Hollis and other incredible human beings, these are their favorite watches now because of the history that comes with them. So just that in itself is problem solving at its finest. How do you repair a 120-year-old watch and turn it into a wristwatch? But your David versus Goliath story was amazing. Do you want to kind of frame it for us? Yeah, absolutely. So it's called Hamilton v. Vortic. If you want to Google it, there's thankfully a ton of press about it. A lot of different, especially legal stories about it. It was It's a court the, battle. The judge, That's why it's Hamilton it was v. A, Vortic. Yeah, it was a huge federal lawsuit. So technically, it was the Swatch Group, which is the parent company of a smaller watch brand called Hamilton. The Swatch Group, people are probably familiar with Swatch watches, you know, mm-hmm. the really inexpensive kind of Timexy watches. But a lot of people don't know that Swatch is almost a $10 billion conglomerate from Switzerland that owns, I think, 24, 25 different watch brands, the largest of which is Omega. And everybody knows Omega. Hence Goliath, 10 billion with a B dollar watch brands. Billions and billions, yep. Picking on the poor um, little millionaire RT. (laughs) Not at that time. So it was a six-year legal battle that started with us. You know, we, we take these gold pocket watches and turn them into wristwatches. One of the best examples, I think, of antique American pocket watches is a brand called Hamilton. And they started in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is just down the road from my hometown back in the late 1800s. And they made some of the best pocket watches that were ever made in the world right there in Pennsylvania for, you know, about 100 years. And... I think it was the 70s that the original Hamilton watch company went out of business, just like most of the old pocket watch companies that made things in America did. And the Swatch Group purchased the brand and the assets and all that stuff and held on to it and then kind of like reinvigorated the brand in in the, the 80s and 90s. And it is a fairly decent sized brand now, the Hamilton watch company, and they make watches in Switzerland and sell them all over the world. But the problem became... 
our pocket watches that we turn into wristwatches, they still say Hamilton on the front of the watch because it's the original face of that pocket watch. It's a hundred year old Hamilton pocket watch. So of course it says it on the face. It's all original and we keep it that way. That's really the point of the company. And they sued us for trademark infringement and counterfeiting. Basically saying that my friend Tyler and I were using the Hamilton brand to make money. Now, we actually received the original cease and desist over five months prior to making our first watch. Okay. So we hadn't even got off the ground yet. We had launched on Kickstarter in late 2014. We got the cease and desist in like June or July of 2015. And we shipped our first watch to a customer from Kickstarter in late 2015. So this is so, like the beginning. You're like, oh, I'm so excited to launch this really unique company. And revenue. they just try and stomp on you. Yeah, exactly. And so there wasn't just one problem, obviously massive yeah. problem that we got sued, but tons of different little problems along the way for that six-year battle. And thankfully, we won. We took them all the way to court. I sat in front of a, a federal judge in Manhattan in early 2020 and, and told our story. And we won the first lawsuit. They appealed. We went to the Court of Appeals in the federal system and won that by a landslide. And late 2021, we found out that they decided not to take it to the Supreme Court, which would have been another problem for me to solve. But just fairly recently at this point, it's it's finally over. The biggest problem of the whole thing is, is the financial one. The problem with the legal system is you're innocent until proven guilty, but it costs a shitload of money to prove that you're innocent. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and across six years, you know, we were paying retainers to attorneys that entire time. I still have, I'm, st- I'm going to pay off that legal debt for another couple of years, probably. Wow. Thankfully, they gave me payment terms. I want to stop um, right there. When you realized I'm about to go to court and battle a $10 billion company, did that thought cross your mind? Like, where am I going to get the money to even defend this thing I'm passionate about? It crossed my mind only when the first attorney I hired told me I couldn't afford to keep fighting and I should file for bankruptcy and give up. And how did you take that news and and problem solve that bad news in itself? I Googled best Colorado bankruptcy attorney (laughs) and I called my new friend, Rob Lance, who is in Denver and who became my new attorney when he said, hey, I'm technically I work in bankruptcy, but I actually go after corporations when they falsely file for bankruptcy. Mm. And I save the small companies that are the victims of those kind of false lawsuits. And my business partner just happens to be an expert trademark attorney. So I'm going to help you. And so what I literally did was I I heard that, right? Yeah, the first number I call off of Google, he happens to have an office maybe seven minutes from our headquarters in Fort Collins. And he answers the phone and happens to have time. His assistant was like, he's always busy, but like he's got 20 minutes for his next meeting. I was on the phone with him for like 90 minutes and like crying in the parking lot of our workshop, trying to figure out how I'm going to explain to my business partner and my team and my investors that like, your boss just Googled how to file bankruptcy. This is awkward. So he and his team and a ton of work and a ton of time saved us from having to face those much bigger problems and those harder discussions of, yeah, where are we going to get the money? Because he also offered payment terms off the bat. I said, like, I don't have the money to fight this and keep running my business. And he was like, we'll talk about that later. Let's defend you from these bullies first. Most people would give up on their business dream right here. So like, they come up with a cool idea and they start to move forward with the idea and they find out, uh-oh, somebody is saying this is infringement. So 
I guarantee nine out of 10 listeners right now, no matter how passionate they were about their idea, they would have stopped in their tracks right there. What about you, Jim? Would you have kept going or stopped your tracks? I'm really curious. Not a loaded question. I would have been one of those nine out of 10. But see, for me, I'm more of the engineer type, Mm -hmm. right? So what's hard for me is discerning the difference between passion and engineering a solution to a problem. So that's one of the things I respect so much about RT is that he didn't need to implement a fix. Mm -hmm. He just needed to be so passionate to be able to find the way through it. And that's the thing. That's the way that our brains are just wired differently. So for me, I would have said like, okay, well, that's fine. I can fix this, but how do I change it? How do I, maybe not a full pivot, but like, what do I need to implement to just subvert it and let it not be a distraction? Again, that's one of the things I respect about URT is you just went right in for it. You're like, no, this is the way to do it. And I know I can handle this. And you fixed it by fully supporting your dream for it. Jim, you're basically saying your logical brain would have looked and said, eh, not worth the fight. Let's adjust to something else. RT said, forget logical brain. I'm passionate. I'm this passionate visionary. And I'm going to bring this thing to, to fruition, come hell or high water. And he took on the giant. How many times did you want to quit in there, RT? For me personally, only once or twice did I have that. I really shouldn't be doing this. And that's that's when I, I started asking for help because I took on the brunt of this lawsuit and, and my business partner, Tyler, and I had this, I mean, agreement that honestly was the backbone of us surviving, which was I'll face the giant, I'll figure out this lawsuit stuff, I'll answer all the calls from the attorneys and all that. You just keep making and selling watches and try to make enough watches that I can sell them and and we'll, we'll financially survive. And so he thankfully just kind of trusted me to take the burden of this emotionally, financially, et cetera. And so I think the biggest challenge that I had was admitting that I needed help. And it, at those inflection points, where basically my previous attorney said, you're screwed, you know, you should really give up. That was a huge inflection point where I started asking for help. And and that's when I found our new attorney that took us all the way through and saved us. But there were some other times in there where I also needed to ask for help on some other things where we were running out of money or we weren't getting any press because there's a ton of problems in here. But Swatch Group is the world's largest watch company. Guess who has every single watch magazine, newspaper, blog in their pocket? The biggest company in the industry. Mm-hmm. None of those publications, and I don't fault them for this. You know, it's sad that journalistic integrity isn't as broad as we'd want it to be, but watch related magazines would not write a story about me because it makes Swatch look like the assholes that they were. And so I asked for help from the greater audience and I sent an email to our email list and I said, hey, customers, like if you know anyone that would write a story like this or how do we figure this out? And that's the other thing that kept me going. Obviously, passion and my passion and our team's passion was really helpful, but also the passionate customers. I mean, I got letters hundreds of responses to emails like that saying, I'm going to send it to my friends. I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy three more watches. I don't need them, but I'm going to just buy them from you so that you can keep fighting these guys. Our customers really came to bat for us emotionally, verbally to me, just saying, go get them. It's worth it. Keep going. You know, you're being bullied, et cetera. And financially just literally buying watches. I mean, ever since we sent some of those emails asking for help, we've been sold out and we've, we're continue to be totally sold out of watches and probably will be for years. I really so, hope everyone listening to this picked up on a few key things in here, right? So this was, for all appearances, an insurmountable battle. One you shouldn't have won. 
when you just stack the size of one party against the size of the other, plus they control the media, et cetera. But you came out a winner because of a few things I picked up on. Number one, you were passionate enough about your idea to move forward into the fire anyways. Most people wouldn't. But what I hope they learn is if you're passionate about something and you got a hurdle in front of you, try and jump it. Don't run away from it. The second thing I picked up on was you have to stay in the game long enough to get a stroke of luck. Because everyone, if they stick around long enough, they're going to get a stroke of luck. And that was the bankruptcy attorney that happened to say, wait a minute, you're not going to claim bankruptcy. We're going to go fight these guys. I happen to know how, right? That's the stroke of luck. But you stayed, you created that luck by staying in the game long enough to finally come across that guy. And then the third thing is you asked for help. You went to your community and here's everyone listening. You forget the power of your community. When you are down, they want to play the hero. They want to rally. And they bought a bunch of watches from him and they supported him and the whole nine yards. You turned your community when you need to help the most and they kept you afloat. Those are three powerful lessons for anybody, no matter what they're facing in their business right now. That's it. And, you know, I think the biggest problem, I think actually, I don't know if it was on the episode that you did with Tony Robbins, the episode that you and Laura did with Tony, I've now on this Tony Robbins kick and I've been listening to like everything else that he's been on. And he said, the biggest problem entrepreneurs have is they think they don't have any. And a lot of us go through life and a lot of these things are easy. And most of entrepreneurship until this lawsuit for me was extremely easy. And I was having fun and I was growing a business and it was just like all sunshine and rainbows, right? Raising money and making watches. And then boom, you get sued by the world's largest watch company for six years. <laughs> and then it's a reality check for sure. But, but you're totally right is in hindsight, sticking with it and asking for help and creating the opportunity for luck and prosperity is how it all came to be. And, and now I'm back in hopefully another season of sunshine and rainbows because right now everything's great. Yeah, now you're in the clear. So before we turn to Jim's story, which I also love, there's one last thing I know everyone's wondering. Why did you win? Like, why was it not infringement that you're using 100-year-old Hamilton watches? Hamilton's still in business, but you're able to refurbish them and sell them as a new watch. So from a legal standpoint, this is the underlying why I fought it the whole time is because from the beginning, I was told that I didn't do anything wrong legally and that this was kind of a gray area of the law that no one's really fought. There's a couple legal terms. One is the first use doctrine. And it's basically if, if something was intended as a pocket watch and then I changed it and created a second use for it, something totally different, meaning now a wristwatch, I've changed it enough theoretically that I can't be sued over any trademarks or patents from the original pocket watch. There's a similar lawsuit that was Ford suing a company for taking a Ford and turning it into a limousine. Yeah. You took a car and turned it into a limousine. It still has Ford on it. You can't say it's a Ford anymore, but it is technically was a Ford. And the little company, little limousine company won that against Great Ford. analogy. And we used that and other lawsuits in that same realm. And so there's a lot of first use doctrine kind of stuff, but the bottom line is upcycling. So we protected the idea of upcycling or taking something, the trash to treasure concept, right? I'm taking a pocket watch that's worth maybe 10 bucks and turning it into a watch that's worth now five to 10,000. And there's so many people over the world that do that kind of stuff that Hamilton v. Vortic will be and already has been cited legally in lots of other similar lawsuits of recycling, upcycling, reuse, those kind of things without getting too technical and legal that's kind of the basis of we never really did anything wrong. We just had to prove that we were doing it the right way and we weren't using their name to make money. We were literally just doing 
a pocket watch to a wristwatch and that's all it was. This makes it's sense. Cool. I mean, this is like somebody who loves classic cars, right? So they go and they find these abandoned trashy classic cars in barns. They restore it themselves. They sell five or 10 of them a year. They make a ton of money. Chevy, Ford, everybody else can't come after them and say, wait, you're selling Chevys and Fords. I mean, basically it's, it's trash that you're upcycling at that point. Another great example where we all played golf is Titleist. Titleist, you can buy a refurbished Titleist Pro V1 golf ball off the shelf. It's a refurb. It's not sold by Titleist anymore. It's sold by some other company. These people are going and taking them out of the ponds and rivers and stuff on golf courses, cleaning them up and selling them as an authentic Titleist Pro V1 golf ball, now refurbished. Huge lawsuit about that in like the 70s or 80s. Titleist lost that lawsuit because as long as the company specifically said refurbished and it is original Titleist, but it's now not sold by Titleist and there's no Titleist warranty or guarantee, now it's okay because it's recycling. It's good for the environment. We don't want to just throw those golf balls away. Titleist already made the money off of selling it the first time. They don't need to make another round of money off of reselling a used one. Some little small business can make money off of that. And now if you walk down the shelf of any golf store, you'll see all these refurbished golf balls because that's okay now. And that's legally accepted that you just have to say refurbished right on the ball and right on the package. This is amazing. I just realized I'm going to go buy up every Vortec watch I can find that you created. I'm going to polish it (laughs) a little bit and sell it for twice as much. That's legal. Thanks for the idea, buddy. I can't, I can't do anything about it. Go do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jim, I want to raise switch. my prices when you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jim, I want to switch to you because you have another awesome story that involves things I love. I just realized I get to tell your stories of overcoming challenges, guys, using things I love, watches, charity, and Bitcoin. Like this is add in bourbon okay. and cars. And this is my favorite episode ever. Jim, you had a different challenge you had to overcome. You have helped raise over $20 million for charities using technology. Technology is your area of expertise. So so charities come to you and they ask you to make it easier for them to raise money and come up with creative marketing ideas using technology to raise money, get less resistance, less friction in raising money. And one of the coolest challenges ever presented itself to you a few years back, and that was some rich mofo came to you and said, I've got millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that I want to give to charities, but I want to be anonymous and I want it to be untraceable. And I mean, most people are like, okay, how am I going to make that happen? But even before everybody was talking about Bitcoin and blockchain, you came up with a solution. Will you kind of share the story with us? Yeah, man. It's one of my favorite stories. And it's because it all started from my intention of how I wanted to fundamentally pivot my life. I do not have as exciting of a story of, of going to war with one of the mass, most massive companies on the planet, but I did spend a majority of my life as a software engineer. So I built a lot of stuff and I got to the point where I was done building stuff. I was just tired of building stuff for everybody else. And I was like, what am I missing? And I realized I needed to do something that lit me up inside, something that I was just overly passionate about. So I decided to really get into the charity space and I started supporting different charities. And this was 2018, right about this time, I started to see the rise of Bitcoin, right? And people were talking about blockchain a little bit in very, very small circles, but Bitcoin was starting to become a household name. Mm -hmm. 2018, this is a while ago. (laughs) Like we're now just kind of joking about it, but back then everybody was like, I still don't get it. And one of our favorite charities, Pencils of Promise, they actually had discovered that there was this individual who they were going by the name of Pineapple Fund. So for anybody who's ever heard about this story, it was real. And this individual 
just owned a ton of Bitcoin. I think at the time it was like 80 or 90 Bitcoin. And we're talking, this is when it was just on the rise. And this person had an amazing wealth of Bitcoin. And $54 million on today's prices, basically. Right. And it was more at the time. That was when it was peaking. Oh, wow. So because of the rise, this person said, you know what? I have more money than I know what to do with in the wealth of Bitcoin. I just want to donate it to charities. 100% anonymous. There's a form you can fill out. They loaded up a website. They posted on Reddit. And the, it just blew up. And at the time, I was supporting Pencils of Promise, just helping them out, finding ways we could use tech to support philanthropy. And about six months prior, we were using Stripe, the payment processor. For entrepreneurs here, you likely know what Stripe is. And at the time, they had a beta feature where you could also accept payments via Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Maybe somebody will have half a Bitcoin or something and you don't want to give a little bit. Well, little did I know that a massively generous philanthropist wanted to give out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things. So what was really cool about this map was a ton of charities applied, but only a handful of them actually knew what the hell to do. And it turned into this massive like paradox. This incredibly generous person was like, yo, I want to send this money and I want to do it before Bitcoin crashes because we didn't know where it was going to go. But all these charities were terrified. They didn't know how to receive it. Correction, I actually reached out to them. I saw them on a forum and I really wanted to be part of that campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time I wasn't just like, you know, I wanted to be philanthropical and and all of that, but I wasn't just in a position to write a bunch of checks. I was like, but I can do this. I know how to set this up. I already did it. And because I had convinced Pencils of Promise to lean in and just be prepared for it and be ready for it, like that, the money came through. And a million dollars worth of US dollars in Bitcoin was just transferred in a split second. And I'll never forget the day we were, Val, me, the kids, we were on vacation in Hawaii and Pop called me and I looked at my phone and I saw the notification that the transfer went through and they were like, okay, Jim, we're going to connect you to the board. We need you to explain what the hell just happened because we have no idea. Because they're totally unfamiliar (laughs) with with Bitcoin still. Yeah, no idea. Right. And neither did anybody else. And as part of that, then it turned into this sort of trickle effect, which is like, hey, our friends over here at this organization, they just got approved too, but they have no idea what to do. Would you be willing to have a call with them? Sure. And so on and so forth. It just turned into this amazing domino effect where now I was being tapped on as like the only human apparently who knew how to talk the difference between blockchain and charity. But what I realized is that there's so many people out there that have these talents like this that just don't speak up. And that gave me a lot of self-confidence. The fact that I was able to, in a period of weeks, weeks, help raise almost 10 million for charities to be able to do all of their things. That they wouldn't have gotten because they were so intimidated and unfamiliar with how to move Bitcoin back then. Exactly. They would have not known what to do. They, they They didn't know what they didn't know, right? You talk about this all the time. And for them to be able to just call me and in a matter of a few minutes, we're like, okay, we're going to set this up. We're going to fire this up. I built a few servers. I set everything up, plugged them all in, 100% secure. And they were done. And now a lot of them have moved forward and they're more progressive now where people do donate different types of cryptocurrencies. Yeah, new services have come up like the Giving Block and you know all of these new companies which are trying to help encourage progressive philanthropy with new technologies. And it's only escalated from there. Right. So that moved into the ability for me to support charity galas and 
bespoke different types of technology plays to just continue to raise more and more funding. So and do you think it'll get to the point where I'm sitting at the thing. Pencils of Promise Gala and we're bidding on lunch with Gary Vee or, you know, all these things that we do that I could just pay from my Coinbase wallet or my MetaMask wallet and be able to pay and bid using that? Absolutely. If uh, COVID hadn't shut down the previous galas, I would have had that set up for you. It's because now it's so commonplace and it's so easy. But just that many years ago, it wasn't. And nobody really knew what to do. So moral of the story is just like, I love leaning into those kind of challenges. And that's why when we were talking before, you know, RT, visionary, he, passion, you know, is his game. I'm equally as passionate, but I'm also like, I just reverse engineer everything. And it's so much easier for me to say, oh, you know what? We can just do it this way and we can get through it. That's why we tag teams so well. Yeah, you guys are such opposite personalities, kind of like Nick and I. And it's why we make great partners is because you cover all the bases. It's interesting because I've gotten to watch the two of you rise from the very beginning of your entrepreneurial careers, not the very beginning, but early stages, let's say, into both of you having you know multi-million dollar businesses and now together. Spoiler alert, you guys have a big marketing company together. You've done a ton of work for Light Pink building out a website and SEO and, and marketing campaign, all these other things. And you guys are just, you're on fire now. You're setting records left and right. But what's been neat is to watch RT come in. And you came in with Lindsay back then, mm-hmm. your significant yep. other, and sit in Fast Foundations, which was our entry-level mastermind, and sit there and just absorb and learn long before you're selling a million bucks worth of watches. You know what? I think I remember your goal was to sell 250 grand worth of watches back then. Does that sound about right for the timing? Yeah, well, so the goal of the original, the first time I did Fast Foundations, I was launching our military edition uh, for the first time. And so that was going to be hopefully, you know, a quarter million dollar launch. I was working on on a bunch of other stuff. And actually, you know, when I was thinking about recording this with you today, I was was trying to think about like what else came from that original Fast Foundations. And besides you just constantly telling me to charge at least three times whatever I charge, no matter what, which thank you for that. Let's be real. No, let's let's be real. What were you charging when you started? started. And because of me badgering you, uh, <laughs> what, what effect did that have on your prices? Yeah. Average purchase price in 2018 was probably 1700. Mm-hmm. 2019 was about 2000, 2100. And 2021 was 3500. Doubled. So we're doubled. And in the you last never had high end offerings either. What's your most expensive watch now? So the military edition that we sold last year, the third round of it was 8,000. We weren't just like, raise the price, raise the price for the sake of raising price. I saw what you had. I saw the uniqueness, the one of a kind nature of what you had, the, the history and the appeal of what you had, the quality, because your own watchmakers that you employ, tear them down and rebuild them and, and all those things. I saw what you have and I was very familiar with the watch market because I love watches. So this wasn't like raise your price for raising price's sake. This was me literally saying, you don't see what you have here. You, because you're wrapped up in it, and like all of us entrepreneurs, probably had insecurities about your own worth of what you could charge and all these things. You didn't see what you had, but outside perspective looking in, I saw that you were significantly underpricing yourself and you wouldn't be able to sustain the mission of bringing this Mm -hmm. history alive if you continue to underprice yourself. Because that's why you have to price accurately to everyone listening. It's not for more profit. You need to price accurately and many times raise your prices in order to have the money to sustain the mission. Because without the yep. money, you can't sustain the mission. You're going to run out, right? You're going to run out of energy. You're going to run out of profit. You're going to run out of cash flow. 
So that was what was behind that. So just an awesome example of what came out of there. Jim, I got to watch you. I've watched you more from tech. Do you remember you came to the very first Fast Foundations and you said, okay, I've been behind the computer and I've been behind the scenes my entire career and I'm ready to step out in front and I am scared. And I could see it in you. The first couple of times I saw how special of a human being you were, but I also saw the fear you had in being out in front because you had never had to do that before. Tell me about that. What was that like to come and say, all right, I'm putting myself out here. I'm going from behind the curtain to out front. What did that feel like? You didn't just see it in me. You saw it on me. I think my pits were just like sweating like crazy when I grabbed the mic for the first time. But it's the truth, man. When you spend so many years focused on what you love to do, and I'm more of a humble guy. I don't have the big flamboyant ego. So I'm not used to getting out there and doing the, the horse and pony. But I realized that the only way that I'm going to make the impact in the world that I truly know that I'm meant for is by breaking out of that and getting rid of that. And so many things that you helped me with along those years, like ask for more favors, speak up, proclaim how proud you are of what you've done. Those little things just continued to help me. So I joined the very first Fast Foundations round in March of 2019. And I remember right from the beginning, I was one of the first people to raise my hand, had no idea what I was doing, but I was ready to try and I was ready to experiment and I was ready to figure it out. And don't get me wrong, it took me a while to do it, but I was able to discern and I was able to absorb everything. And then I was able to put it into my crazy engineer brain and come up with my plan without knowing that I had that guidance and Lori taught a lot about the mindset and Mm -hmm. self-worth and things like that. And personally, I had never really invested in the inner work previously. I remember I I joined that very first one. I was like, okay, Chris, teach me all the business stuff. Like, what am I missing? I was like, actually, it's simpler than that. I just need to actually focus on me. I need to remind myself that I have everything that I, I need inside of me, but I've got to be proud of it. I've got to find my way to be utterly me. and just be unique and show up. And it worked because the more I showed up, the more I raised my hand, the more I tried stuff, it reflected on everybody in the group. It reflected on RT. I mean, Chris, you and Nick reached out to me when you were thinking about, we need a tech co-founder for our new agency. That was was such a humbling but proud moment where I was like, oh, I guess it does make sense. I guess I should get in the room. I guess I should be vulnerable. I guess I should raise my hand. You know, I bet a lot of people listening don't realize that that you and I own a digital marketing agency together. You, me, and Nick, and someone named Andy for West Digital, right? And what happened without you being in the room? That's it. It required me continuing and showing up. And that's why I renewed time after time after time because it wasn't because I needed more strategy. It was because I needed more accountability. And I, I knew that if I put enough on the line, that I would keep pushing myself to the point where I would have no choice but to go forward. Well, and, and, and something really neat happened between the two of you. So here's kind of a neat punchline that we're getting to. And that is the two of you are now business partners in a multi-million dollar marketing agency, Carter and Custer. And it really happened because you were in masterminds individually. Then you guys both graduated up into the elite mastermind. And after spending half of a year together in the elite mastermind, the two of you started saying, wait a second, I think we kind of need to partner our skill sets and create this mega agency. What was that like? Talk me through what was the seed that was planted there and how did you guys end up business partners in Carter and Custer? Well, I think everything that you guys were just talking about is for me and, and my side of this equation, 
from the very beginning, Chris, when I got to my first round of Fast Foundations, if anyone had a tech-related question, you and Lori and Nick were like, you should go talk to Jim. Like, I feel like Jim's probably solved a similar problem. Like in the couple rounds of Fast Foundations that I did, it's like, go talk to Jim. Like Jim's the tech guy. Jim's the tech expert, right? And you did the same thing for me, Chris. And what that is, is you're creating admiration and respect in this person, Jim, that I'd never really talked to much, right? And you did the same thing for me, maybe more in the elite mastermind, but you said RT's the consumer product guy, consumer product marketing, like he sold a six foot stick for a hundred grand. Like if you can sell that, you can do anything, right? Like you called me out and, and that not only gives us when you call us out like that as the leader of a mastermind, immense confidence and like, oh, maybe I am actually good at consumer product marketing. People you know? need to realize- Maybe Jim's actually the tech guy. <laughs> yeah, you need people to speak life into you, right? You need people to edify you, speak life into you to realize sometimes A, what you're good at, B, to realize how good you are at something and C, to get out of your own monkey brain. We all do it. I need for people sure. to speak life into me and say, boy, Chris, you're so good at X, Y, and Z. Like 10 times for me to realize, wait, I am. I guess I do have a track record of being good at this. So that's the power of being together in a group. All right, so you guys start sure. to see each other's sure. expertise. Yeah, and really what came from that is picking Jim's brain about a bunch of tech things ended up being very operational. And I loved the way his brain worked in terms of like, all right, if we're going to do this, you got to set up this, you know, here's the systems and software and, and backend operations you're going to need to set all this up. And he was almost giving me advice about my marketing agency that was just kind of, you know, trying to find its own way. And then that conversation kind of evolved into this like, okay, I have a bunch of these types of humans and you have a bunch of these types of humans. And my agency sold more consumer product focused things, much more content, like filming content, videographer, photography, all that kind of stuff, making Shopify sites. And his agency was a lot more on the nonprofit side and the backend operations and then the content SEO, multiplication and distribution that, yeah. and SEO, all, all that more tech things. And we realized we literally like overlaid our org charts and we're like, huh, we don't have any overlap. We don't have to lose a single person. If we merge these teams, we get to keep all these wonderful people that we had and and we'll double or triple the size of our company overnight. Not to mention he's good at ops and I'm good at sales. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the C-suite was just done for us already. It was just like, all right, maybe we should do this. And we had that first conversation. I think the first day of the first event of the elite mastermind. This episode's about problem solving as entrepreneurs. And and each of you faced a problem that joining your businesses together solved, right? Jim, yours was sales. You didn't enjoy it and it was not your strength, but boy, did you have operations intact. RT, your problem was always the tech side and some of the more granular stuff, but you could sell ice to an Eskimo, so to speak. So it's really neat that once again, when we face the challenge of not knowing how to do something, when we face the challenge, we're never going to be good at a certain set of skill sets. Sometimes the problem solving option there is to go find someone who is and then cross the finish line together. I just did this with my fintech app that's coming out. By the way, last night I got the screenshot of the login page and they showed me some of the functionality. I literally could have fallen to the floor. It was just so neat to see for that first time, right? But I knew I could never bring something like that across the finish line. I had the idea. I know I've got the audience. I have everybody in the world wanting to be a part of fundraising this thing and getting it out there. But I don't like tech and I didn't know how to bring it to light. And my friend Matt had just sold a great big tech company for multiple nine figures and was allowed to retain his team because they wanted his customers as tech, but not his team. So I went to Matt and I said, hey, you're good at what I'm not. And I'm good at what you don't want to do. 
let's take this idea across the finish line. And it's why we're off to the races right now. And you guys are a beautiful example of that. So what other problem do you think you guys solved by coming together in your agency? Man, it's so exciting because it's all so new, but it feels like we've been doing this for years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I have an exact answer in RT. I'm happy if you want to jump in. But for me, it's I've never felt more aligned about being able to focus on absolutely what I love and just trusting everybody else to do what they love, right? Because part of our agreement in this was something I think that you taught us actually, Chris, which is just like only do what only you can do. And we've really, really embodied that. So RT doesn't want to be part of logistics and, you know, high level, big budget things and everything. And I just provide him recaps and he's happy with it. Similarly, I trust him on the new business pipeline, the, the sales uh, oversight, working with our account management team, pouring into our team. But that allows us to do what we're great at. And the trickle-down effect is phenomenal, right? The more we trust our team, the more we just continue to grow that out. I mean, don't get me wrong. Our payroll is crazy. But we also then are so grateful that we get to take care of all of these wonderful people on our teams. And they're so excited to serve. So it just feels like we finally have a flow. And we're loving what we do, right? We just, we just love working with different customers, having different challenges. And we found that very few things are unique problems. Things can be solved in very similar ways. Yeah. So the ability for us to take all this diversity, all this experience, it's not RT and my show. We just happen to be the two guys that came together and had the name on the company. But our entire C-suite is female. We just continue to grow. We continue to stretch out. And we're so excited to help people bring their dreams to life and support entrepreneurs to make a bigger impact. Well, and a really neat trend started happening. And here's where we're going to surprise everybody with something neat that you're going to give them a chance to do. But a really neat trend started happening. The two of you came together and you formed this agency and lots and lots of big companies came to you to say, hey, could you help us? And they made for great clients like Lori, Light Pink, things like that. But then a lot of solopreneurs came to you and said, oh my gosh, could you help me too? And your agency was a little too big for them as a customer, right? They're just getting started in their first 50 grand or their first 100 grand or their first $150,000, you know, size business, first quarter million dollar business. And that's not quite the type of business, especially coaches, that kind of thing necessarily that the agency is looking to sign as a customer, but they still wanted your help. Now, at the same time as you getting all these requests, I make the announcement that, hey, I'm shutting down every single offering that we have in the year 2022, so I can go build my fintech app and Lori can build her beverage company app. And one of those offerings was what got you guys started and ended up having the two of you in relationship. And that was Fast Foundations. And the two of you reached out when you heard this and you said, are you going to shut that thing down? Like it's too popular. It's done too much good for too many people. Matter of fact, you gave me this plaque with over 300 names of people who have thriving businesses right now that were graduates of Fast Foundations. You said, you really gonna shut this down? I said, well, yeah, I don't. I got to chase my dream. This is my legacy. This is my calling. I don't want to shut it down. I love it. But sometimes in life, you have to make hard choices to shut down good things. And the two of you said, we can't let that happen. And you were coaches in the program too, by the way. That's why I kept coming to you guys. The two of you said, I can't let that happen. Would you let us buy it from you? And I mean, I didn't even think about that prior to that. I was sad that it was shutting down, but I didn't problem solve the theme of the thing. I didn't problem solve well enough to think, wait, maybe there's someone else that could carry the torch. So without the two of you coming and saying, uh-uh, this can't happen. Can we buy this from you? Then this torch wouldn't be carried. This very important program wouldn't live on. What made you guys, like for in your words, not mine, 
what made you guys say, uh-uh, we got to buy this and keep this going? Well, you mentioned Lindsay earlier. She did the Fest Foundations with me. And uh, this was her idea. Jim and Val and Lindsay and I were hanging out in Vegas one night. And we had the time of our lives, like enjoying the energy, right? And we're on the plane, she and I going back to Denver. And I was just saying something similar to what you just said is like, I was almost complaining about how big the agency was getting and how like, you know, the minimum investment monthly to work with our agency was higher, was necessary for business operations. Like you said earlier, like sustaining all the great stuff we want to do. But I started an agency so I could help, especially consumer product entrepreneurs, be fearless, right? And get that off the ground. And I love that first six to 12 months of starting a new business, especially a product business. And I want to work with those people. And it's why I was a coach in Fast Foundations. I just love that stuff. And I was like complaining, like, how am I getting back fix? You know, how am I going to help these people? And she was just like, what if you just bought Fast Foundations? And I was like, that's a really good idea. And I immediately texted Jim and I was like, random crazy idea from the plane. What if we bought Fast Foundations? And I don't, I think you just sent me a shitload of emojis or something back like that. Like, what? Yeah, like, <laughs> and then I just happened to have a call with you, Chris. I think for the Elite Mastermind, like one of the, our mentor calls from like that. And, and I brought it up and that was like maybe 48 hours later. And here we are. So got to give credit where credit's due. It's definitely Lindsay's idea. Go Lindsay. But, but yeah, it's a great idea, right? It happened. It's coming through. Well, you guys are carrying it on. And, and you came to me and you said, can we buy it? And we said, sure. And you said, we can do it better than you. And you're like, no offense. But we think we can do it better than you. And I actually loved hearing that. What are some things that you saw as areas of opportunity that we didn't have the bandwidth to do that you think could have been better, done better with Fast Foundations that you're going to do going forward? Well, I think the first one is not necessarily that you could have done anything different immediately. It's more just like the environment that we live in or lived in, but it's bringing it back in person. And so that's the biggest thing that Jim and I love about Fast Foundations is the in-person connection, the little sidebar conversations that happen in person between the, the events and the speakers and the dinners after the events. And just being able to meet you in person, shake your hand and hang out and all that stuff, that in-person connection is the first thing we're, we're bringing back now, not necessarily doing and that um, can't massively be re- That different. can't be duplicated online. You can do a lot of things exactly. to connect people online. I'm not saying online is dead, but... You just can't duplicate that in-person connection. That's really what forms lasting relationships like the two of you. Yep. So that's definitely number one. Number two is we believe that Facebook groups are dying. And so we're going to put the virtual side of of Fast Foundations on a Mighty Networks community. So it's totally off of Facebook. It's a separate app. There's a lot cleaner interaction with everyone. It works the same way. But now all of the content, like the content library that also comes with Fast Foundations will be in the same exact place as the the conversations and the community. So it's all in this one app uh, via Mighty Networks. We're building that out right now. The list goes on, but I would say the the other thing that we have that you didn't is is a massive team. Like we talked about, we have a whole agency behind us. So our team currently, as we're just shooting the shit here, they're working on stuff. They're building the next landing pages for the next round. They're working on building out the Mighty Networks community. They're working on all the great content. They're setting up the venues for the in-person events. And Jim and I, when we get to Fast Foundations, just like you, I mean, you had a team. It was just just a smaller team. We have the power of this big team. So when we show up, we're 100% there and we're going to pour into all 50 of these people because we have zero distractions, thankfully, due to our team. That's a huge point. Because 
we don't have a giant marketing agency with SEO, copywriters, everything, all that stuff. You have that. So the accessibility of ideas and help and all these other things in this program just got 100, 200, 300% better than it was before. And before it was the best program on the planet. It really was, not my words, everybody else's who's been through it. So this is just getting better and better. Jim, any take on what you think is going to be even better for this next round as you guys carry this forward? I think the most exciting thing for me, Chris, is to make so clear is that because we were part of it and because we were success stories from it, we have not only this innate need to honor it, but to mature it and to grow it and to style flex with how the industry changes. And because we're so connected to the industry through our agency and our team, we can bring that to everybody so quickly. You know, it was one thing when you started it and it was new. And I know you guys tried a lot of things. We were excited to be part of it. And we, we learned a lot too. But you're also, you know, as part of this, you're giving us the best takeaways about what worked and what didn't work. So we have the privilege of being able to take the best formats of all the stuff that you helped go through that, that we were part of and to just continue to iterate on it and continue to grow it. And we have big dreams for what it can be right? RT mentioned that mighty network, like we can turn little pieces of that into its own community to help get people an edge if they're not ready to get to in person in the future. We can start to release niche versions, different niches where RT has so much CPG experience. We've talked about what would it be like for him to lead a very immersive one for just people who want to sell. For me, anybody who follows me, they know I go by cause hacker, right? It's my sort of adage to growth hackers, but doing it for purpose. It's always been my dream ever since I started to get into charity that I wanted to lead a movement for cause hacking. And this is one of the gateways for me to be closer to actually doing that and showing people that you can do it. So there's so many exciting things that we have cooking that we just kind of announced a little bit of that's on our roadmap, but it starts with just doing what works. And we're so excited to bring this back in person, continue the coaching and just pour into entrepreneurs. And again, to make them fearless so that way they can make their impact in the world like we have been given the opportunity to do. Well, I'm so grateful for you guys yeah. doing that. I'm so proud. I mean, literally I was, I had tears in my eyes at the thought of not having this around anymore. And, and thanks to you guys, it's now your baby and you're running it better than we were going to. Not to mention, you still have one-on-one coaches for every member. So, you know, that they can talk to each month. You still have that entire video library of all the knowledge that's been taught and Lori, Nick and I have committed to coming and teaching at the in-person ones for at least the next couple of years that you do because it still meant a lot to us. We just couldn't run it anymore. So we're going to be there in person, me, Lori, Nick, at these as well as you guys. So we kind of need to watch you run them instead of me this time, by the way. I'm going to enjoy that. So listen, guys, if you're listening right now and if you ever wanted to be a part of Fast Foundations when we had it, in a way, you're getting an even better one now and we're still involved. So Literally, drop what you're doing, hit pause in this thing, and go to fastfoundations.com. Again, literally hit pause, go to fastfoundations.com, and either put yourself on a waiting list or grab one of the spots, if cards is already open, to grab one of them right now. But I'm not even kidding. Drop what you're doing right now, hit pause. You can always come back and listen to the ending and go to fastfoundations.com and grab a spot or put yourself on the waiting list. Because literally, I want to meet you in person. I want to meet my listeners in person. And I can't wait to see these guys take this to the next evolution. Now, listen, if you're not ready to go and check that out yet, these guys have still been gracious enough to offer you a 30-minute, totally free strategy session to help problem solve one of your biggest challenges in business. That was the whole theme of this thing, right? Uh, How to problem solve your challenges in business. And these guys do it better than anybody else. So if you would like... Jim or RT 
to spend up to 30 minutes with you free, no catch, to help problem solve one of your challenges as you're getting your business off the ground, text the word strategy to 310-496-3389. Again, text the word strategy. That's how you get your free 30-minute session. Text the word strategy to 310-496-3389. I'm not kidding. Guys, it's free. No strings attached. But know this. At the end of that strategy session, they are going to ask you if you'd be a good fit for Fast Foundations because if you had one challenge that they were able to problem solve for you, imagine what they could do for your other challenges. So I think that's a fair equal energy exchange. You get up to a half an hour of expert coaches that normally charge tens of thousands of dollars a month to work with their agency for free, no strings attached, by texting strategy, text the word strategy to 310-496-3389. And at the end, all they're going to do is ask you, hey, do you have any interest in Fast Foundations? If you had this problem, maybe we could solve some others with you and, and really get you across the finish line. Guys, we've eaten up a lot of your time, but thank you for coming on and sharing these stories of overcoming challenges so that everybody else listening won't back down when their Goliath appears. They won't back down when something unconventional like blockchain and, and a way to raise capital appears. Instead, they will lean into it. They will problem solve. Heck, they'll raise their hand just like each of you did and ask for help, hopefully from the two of you guys. And I just can't thank you enough for jumping on and sharing those stories. Thanks, Chris. It was an honor to be here. We love you, man. Always grateful, buddy. Same. Likewise, right back at you guys. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success. 